And I want to invite those who, he, who are here to turn to Genesis chapter 6, is where we're going to be in a, in a minute. Genesis chapter 6. We live in a spiritual world, and we are in a spiritual battle. We might be oblivious to it, but we live in a spiritual world. And if I came to you and put my hand on your shoulder, you would feel my touch. And that's because we live in a physical world. But the spiritual world that we live in is just as real as the physical world. I don't know that I could say more so, but certainly equal to. We live in a spiritual world and we're in a spiritual battle. We are in Genesis chapter 6 this morning, but before we get there, in Genesis chapter 5, we learned that from Adam to Noah was just a little bit more than 1,656 years. And I say a little bit more because we don't know if the, the ones who had the next generation had their babies, had their sons the first month of that year or the last month of that year. And so there were 10 generations. And so that would account for just a little bit more time. Um, we find from Genesis chapter 5 that Adam lived 930 years that he had Seth in his 130th year, and then each generation after him, it says when the, when the dad had the son, that was that promised line. And it always said that there were other sons and daughters, but we have the following of that promised line, the promised seed that would ultimately come. We also don't know how long Adam was in the garden tending it before God brought Eve to him, nor do we know how long um, Eve was in the picture before Satan tempted her, um, but certainly not millions and millions and billions of years. Um, what we do know from chapter 5, verse 32, the last person in that line that was traced in Genesis 5 was Noah, and it says Noah was 500 years old, and Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That doesn't mean he had triplets, it just means that he fathered them and began doing that in his 500th year. We asked last week, why did they live so long back then, and suggested two possibilities, uh, and then a third that helps us especially because it's biblical. The one possibility is what's called the canopy theory, and this is pre-flood time, and because it's pre-flood, um, the sun didn't break through because there was still water in the clouds, and then when the flood broke out, the waters came down, and the waters came back up, so that canopy theory maybe protected mankind for some amount of time as well as man's original DNA would have been sinless in the garden, and then it began to be affected by sin. And these days we have many, many more diseases than what they would have had back then. Um, but perhaps disease, um, because of the curse, would have uh, uh, hindered, them from, uh, hindered mankind from living that long. But especially, we add to that the biblical text of Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, where it says that God was tired of striving with man, that he was going to limit their age to 120. 120 years. And it is rare that anybody gets 100 years, um, but, but uh, it was 120. And what you find from Genesis chapter 6, if you look in Genesis 11, where there's another genealogy, is those years began to diminish, little by little by little. And these days, I know quite a few people who are in their 90s, um, I've never, I don't think I've ever buried anybody that's been 100 years old, um, but there are people that, that have lived to be 100 years. I know people who say their parents were 100 years old, um, but we have uh, much less time than what they had in that Genesis 5 um, picture. So what I want to do to get started this morning, because we're going to enter into a pretty heavy text, what I want to do to get started is I want us to step back and get a big picture view of what we've learned so far. 
The declarations of Genesis 6 are so strong that I want to make sure that we have the key elements in our mind. First, we have God creating the world and all that's in it, and Him declaring it is very good. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw everything that He had made. Behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. God then tells, tests rather, not tells, He tells him also, but He tests Adam, telling him he may eat from anything that's in the garden except for a very specific tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat, surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. The serpent comes into the picture, deceives the woman that God had brought to man, and she served her husband also with the fruit, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eye, that the tree was to be desired to, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband uh, who was with her, and he, ha- he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. The serpent is cursed, woman is cursed, man is cursed, and even the ground is cursed. And I'm not going to read those passages, but that's chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. And so the effects of disobedience to God, it isn't that they ate and ate from the tree. It's disobedience to God. The effects of disobedience to God brought a huge curse. And we're going to be into that a little bit again today. God drove man out of the garden, I believe, as an act of grace and mercy. Chapter 3 says, Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever in that sinful state. And so he put... He put uh, angels to guard the tree of life at the, at the, at the entrance of the garden um, so that man wouldn't reach out and eat in that sinf- and live forever in that sinful state. Well, in Genesis chapter 4, the very first thing that we find is we find murder beginning to happen, and it was brother with brother. And then a little bit later on in that chapter, we find Lamech also murdering somebody a few generations later. And then we note that from Adam through Noah's, through Noah's father Lamech, which is a different Lamech than, than, the, Genesis of, uh, than the Lamech of Genesis 4, um, we notice that from Adam to Noah's father Lamech, uh, from Genesis 5, each generation died, which was a partial fulfillment of God's word to Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And I say partial fulfillment because they died physically, began dying physically, but there was instantly a separation from God. And that's what death means. It means a separation. And so God was on, God was, God placed them outside of the garden. He placed a, a, a flaming a angel with, uh, with a flaming sword, I believe it says, um, so that they couldn't eat from the tree uh, 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 and, and live in that way forever. And so there was spiritual death as well. What we didn't do, and I'm going to pass this over, maybe write something about it someday, is we didn't talk about Enoch very much. Enoch, it says in Genesis chapter 5, walked with God and he was not. He was so dedicated, he was sinful just like everybody else in Seth's line, but he recognized God and his need and mercy, and he had such a testimony of walking with God that God took him. He raptured him, if you will. It happens one other time in Scripture. It's going to happen with those that are Christ's followers also. Um, But he walked with God and he was not. Which shows us a couple of things. It shows us that God is not bound to function the way we think he always functions. That you're born, you live, you die. That didn't happen with Enoch. Uh, And and Enoch merits a message, but we're, we're not going to go there. The big picture shows us that sin 
the sin of disobeying God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the curse that came afterwards had and has a huge effect on our world. We live in a spiritual world and it is just as spiritual as it is physical. There isn't anything inferior or superior to the spiritual side or the physical side. We're here because God created us. We live in a very spiritual world. Not many acknowledge that. There are a lot of people who don't want to acknowledge God and his existence or that he created. Um, Not many. Some would say that we're evolving. I don't see us evolving. I see us devolving, if that's a word. Um, We're certainly not going forward. We seem to be going backwards. But it gets worse. And that's where we're at today. We're in Genesis chapter 6. So far we have mankind and Satan in this Genesis account. Genesis 6 introduces another group of demonic influences. So let's just read the first eight verses of Genesis 6. We're not going to get all the way there today, um, but let's read it and then let's seek to understand at least the first four verses of that. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, or shall not strive with man forever, another translation, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephtalim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. And I want you to take note of that, and also afterward, because we're going to talk about that in a little bit too. The Nephtalim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we're 1,656 years and some time into it when we find Genesis chapter 6 happening and God regretting that he had made man. There is a lot in these, in these, in these eight verses, isn't there? I mean, how do you, how do you choose what you're going to emphasize? Well, what I do is pray and ask the Lord. But we've got the sons of God. We've got God's time limit on man's life a race of giants, also called mighty men, God's true but painful assessment of mankind in verse 5, God regretting he had done something. Does that mean he changed? I thought God was uh, unchangeable. The beginning of the text that speaks of a universal judgment, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a lot in there. So what we're going to do is try and seek to understand the first four verses, and let's start with who are these sons of God? 
That's the question. Who are these sons of God? And we're going to let Scripture answer that question, even though it brings up some other questions and even leads us to a place of limited understanding of something that we probably think that we know. Because we've been taught all of our lives, if you've grown up in church, um, concerning angels. Um, We're going to let Scripture answer and then recognize that it also brings up some other question. Who are the sons of God? Let me give you some options that I read from those that are uh, smarter than I am. They're either fallen angels or simply powerful kings and mighty people of their day. Or they're descendants from Seth intermarrying with descendants of Cain or others um, who were not from the promised seed line. And one commentator even suggests that they were human men, but they were uh, intensely, um, uh, that they were uh, demon-possessed to the point that the offspring would be affected as well. Scripture helps us identify the sons of God. And this morning, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to keep a Bible and open it with me to the passages that we're going to read, because I'd like for you to see them in Scripture as we read them together. Um, Scripture helps us identify the sons of God, but it also complicates our understanding of some things. Okay, and that's why I wanted to start with we live in a spiritual world. We live in a world that is spiritual, and it is just as spiritual as I am standing before you today. Um, Sons of God. I'm in Job. Open your Bible to Job. We're going to look at three passages here. Job chapter 1, right in the middle of your Bible probably. Job chapter 1. Give you a second to get there, or punch it in on your phone if that's what you do these days. Job chapter 1, verse 6 where it says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And so the picture is God is on His throne, and the sons of God and Satan also would come and give an account. And he would ask questions like, where have you been? What have you been doing? And so we see him in control, and those that are the sons of God and Satan given an account. We find the same phrase in Job chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So note that among them, he is considered as one of them to present himself before the Lord. This is when God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So what that tells us is that the earth has already been created. Job is already walking on the earth. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And so it was during that time that they were still giving an account to God for their activities that they did from time to time. But Job 38, and flip over there if you will, really helps us out because God is giving Job in Job 38 a what for for his attitude. Now Job went through a lot, and I wouldn't want to go through anything that Job had to go through, but he had a little bit of a fault of of an attitude in the midst of it. And in Job 38, God's given him a little bit of, no, he's not giving him a little bit of a hard time. He's giving him a hard time about the attitude that he has. And so God speaks of the creation event. So now we're talking about before mankind existed. He's speaking about the creation event. And he refers to the angelic host as the morning stars and the sons of God. I'm in Job 38, verse 4, where God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And so here we have that same phrase, same Hebrew phrase, sons of God, and we don't have mankind being created yet. This is prior to creation. God is speaking of when he created, and as he did did things, the morning stars and the sons of God shouted for joy. Adam wasn't created yet, meaning Seth and Cain weren't on the scene yet, nor the daughters of men. This helps us identify the sons of God as angelic beings, angelic beings that were fallen. Now that just opens up a bunch of questions about how could they do what they did, which we don't have answers to, but it helps us identify from biblical text who these Genesis 6 sons of God were. It complicates our understanding of angels because we've been taught that they don't reproduce. There was a specific number of angels that we've been taught were created and a third of them fell and followed after Satan, which is true as well. How could they marry and cohabit with the daughters of men and produce an offspring that would be human? Giants even. And that's why I started with, we live in a very spiritual world. Just as spiritual as it is physical. And just because we have understandings and limits on our understandings doesn't mean that God can't rapture Enoch out of the earth or that God doesn't choose to allow these fallen angels to cohabit with women even though they weren't supposed to, and we're going to see that as well. Of the options mentioned, fallen angels, merely powerful people of the day, or descendants from Seth intermarrying with descendants from Cain, or demon-possessed men, it appears, and I believe, that the best explanation of Genesis chapter 6, and turn back there if you will, just for a second, and we're going to move on. Uh, the, the best explanation of Genesis chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 4 is that the sons of God are fallen angels who cohabit with the daughters of men. And let me show you the why I say that from the New Testament. I sent you to Genesis 6. Run over to Jude. Look in the end of your, the end of your New Testament and look at Jude. We're going to look at Jude. You can put your finger there. We're going to look at a passage in 1 Peter very quickly. We're going to look at one in 2 Peter as well. The best explanation of Genesis 6, 2, and 4 is that the sons of God are fallen angels who somehow got allowed to cohabit with the daughters of men, producing a race that's called the Nephtalim, which were giants in the land. Jude. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read a little bit from the beginning where Jude says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you about the joy of the Lord and what forgiveness is and things like that. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in, and this is why I wanted to do this, because certain men have crept in or crept into the believer, crept into the church unnoticed. They, they, they came in by stealth is the word that's used. Certain men, excuse me, certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Lord, Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Jude is warning his readers of godless people set on spiritual destruction in the church, okay? And then he says in verse 5, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, and I find that very interesting that he says the one who freed Moses and the children of Israel wasn't the angel. He says Jesus. It was Jesus who once saved uh, a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. He's not talking about destroying the Egyptians who were pagan. He's talking about destroying the Jews who didn't believe God. All right. Afterwards, he destroyed those who did not believe. He gives another example that takes us back to our Genesis 6 passage. Verse 6, he says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah as well. And so he says that there were people, there were people who were unbelievers um, that left Egypt, but then he, then he goes back to the angels and he says, he says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority left their proper dwelling. So God had assigned these angels, either, either good ones or fallen ones, of, of a proper dwelling. This is where you should function. This is what you should do. And just like Adam chose to pull from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, these angels saw these attractive daughters of men and stepped outside of their proper domain and cohabited with them. Now that blows my mind, but that's what the text is saying. I don't know the how-to of that, but I can say what the text is saying. These angels, fallen angels, sons of God, didn't stay within their proper dwelling, their own position of authority, and they didn't do that by cohabiting with the daughters of men. Listen to this, an act so evil that they are already in pre-judgment confinement. It was so bad so quickly that God picked those up that violated this proper domain and placed them in this dark, gloomy, chained place until the day of judgment. Okay, that's what it says in Jude. He's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment of that great day, which is still future. Their activity was so atrocious, so wicked, they stepped outside of their established realm and committed this evil act. And Jude says that God imprisoned them to await a final judgment. You might say, you mean God allowed these fallen angels to do that? And it appears that he did. From the Genesis 6 text, from Jude, from 2 Peter chapter 2 that we're going to read here in a minute. God in his all-knowledge, all-knowing, all-powerful ability allowed Adam to eat of the knowledge of of the tree of good and evil. And the text suggests that he allowed these angels to do this wicked act as well. Which resulted in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Not only that... But it also is linked to the flood and the destruction of man and animals and creeping things and birds because God said very shortly after, I am sorry that I have made them. They are so wicked, so evil that I have repented that I have made mankind. This is how evil the world had become in 10 generations, 1,656 and a little bit more. Um, That's how evil that the world had become in that time. But don't assume that the daughters of men were unfortunate and innocent. It was an evil day, and their hearts were evil as well. 
Listen to what 1 Peter says about this. Link, I'm not going to read much, but if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Link, listen to what 1 Peter has to say about the linking Jesus to this event. Verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That would be these Genesis 6 evil spirits that, that are chained in this darky, gloomy prison, whom he uh, went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So it takes us right back there to Genesis chapter 6 and says that Jesus, after he died, before he was resurrected, went, to the, went, and, and, went into, and, and preached to these, to these spirits that were imprisoned. We find in Genesis, this Genesis 6 account being mentioned thousands of years later after Jesus' death and before his resurrection. It is a huge deal. It's huge. Jude isn't the only place that mentions this. Open your Bible to 2 Peter. 2 Peter gives us some insight also. And actually, 2 Peter is going to give us uh, uh, our takeaway for today. I, wanted to, I want today to be more than just head knowledge. We're going to have a takeaway, and Peter makes it very easy. I want to read around the focused verses because I want the spiritual battle to be our focus for today. I'm in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 says this, but false prophets also arose among the people, that's Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies. They don't do it out in the open, they're secret about it. I mean, sometimes they mix a little bit of truth and a little bit of error, but they're, they're skillful in the secrecy that they do, who, who, uh, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, in their greed they will exploit you with false words their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep and so when we see evil or those who do evil appearing to prosper it's good to remember that the, their destruction is not idle and their destruction is, is not asleep and, 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 it's not, and God is not idle in this judgment either. It's going to happen. It's his time, but it's going to happen. Watch the text. I'm going to highlight what I want to be highlighted, and then I'll go back and read it again because he flows chronologically in what he says. I want you to see this. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels who sinned, Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah. Verse 6, he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he moves chronologically through what he was wanting to say from the Old Testament. Let's go back and read it now. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, which is the word Tartarus, which is a holding cell, if you will. It's in chains, in dark, it's gloomy, awaiting a final judgment of that great day, which hasn't happened yet. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, pre-judgment confinement, if you will. 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. And I don't think, this is just a little sideline, I don't think this seven others is Noah's wife and his three sons and their, and their wives. I think this seven others are seven other heralds of righteousness. And when you go back to the Genesis 5 passage, that would make eight people from Adam all the way down to Noah that were heralds of righteousness. You say, but yeah, but there were 10 generations. Two of those, the fathers outlived the sons. Enoch walked with God and he was not. And the other one, the father outlived the son. And it appears that the task of the one who was the head of that clan had the responsibility of declaring the message of God. That's a possibility for what he's saying here. If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extension, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued righteous lot greatly listen to this description of of lot really changes your mindset on him if he rescued righteous lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for as that righteous man lived among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard verse 9 then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and that's going to be our focus at the end of the message the lord knows how to rescue the godly from from trials and to keep the unrighteous under judgment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authorities so jerry you're saying since all of this happened pre-flood that these fallen angels cohabited with the daughters of men and the nephilim were the production of, of of that of that union and there were giants mighty men the offspring of the fallen angels who who left their proper domain the daughters of men then they've all died because God sent a flood on the earth, and the only people that lived were Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And that would be nice if it were true. But we find that it's not. We find in verse 4 of what we read today in Genesis 6, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So not only in those days, but also afterwards, which is afterwards of the, of the, of the flood. Don't hear me say... Don't hear me say that everyone who is gigantic is evil, okay? But everyone who's gigantic needs Jesus, all right? But don't hear me say that just because somebody's big that they're evil. I want to give you a couple of modern-day examples of giants and then a couple of biblical examples. And I know this is a little unorthodox, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) This is my shoe. This is a size 10. You ever heard of Shaquille O'Neal? Zach, Zach, Shaq has a size 22 shoe. That would be this and that. That's his shoe. And all the rest of his body matches the size of his foot. (laughs) He's a giant. I mean, I'm not big. I get that. I'm just kind of your average guy. But when you're walking around with this, that's a giant. I remember when I was in Chad, Africa, in the interior, that I would constantly walk around like this to talk to the chief and to the men of the tribe. And they weren't all like this. There were some that I was able to look eye to eye with. But these guys were just incredibly large. They were big. In Numbers 13, open your Bible there. We're going to go there for a minute. In Numbers 13, and I've been 
I've been consumed with this of late. Numbers 13 is approximately 1,300 years after Noah. And we can say that with some pretty good uh, uh, assurance because in Genesis 11, it starts a genealogy with Noah's sons. And then it gives, them how, and it gives us how, how long they lived afterwards. And we're able to trace that all the way down to Abraham. In Genesis 11, it's a total of 390 years. And then we know from text from Genesis 21 that Abraham had Isaac when he was 100 years old. And we know that Isaac had Jacob and Esau when he was 60 years old. We don't know when Jacob had Joseph, but there's a calculation of somewhere around when he was 90 years old. So there's a little bit of wiggle room. We'll give it that. And we know that Joseph lived 110 years from Genesis chapter 50. And then a new Pharaoh had to rise up and he had to live long enough that he knew not Joseph. And then they put the children of Israel into, into slavery. And so we have 430 years of exile. And then Moses was 80 years old when, when God called him and he began leading the children of Israel uh, uh, of Egypt. And so it's about 1,300 years. So we add 1,656 and a little bit to this 1,300 and maybe a little bit as well. And that's what you have from the time frame of when God had created the garden up until this time. I've been enthralled with this lately. Numbers 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 2, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. For each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So he wanted him to send out the chiefs. Drop down to verse 17, and it says this. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, see what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. Whether they're few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are trees or not, be of good courage, after all that, be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Ripe grapes. Verse 21. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near La. Labohamath, they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. And for some reason, he adds this sentence, and we know the reason. He says, Ahimam, Shashai, and Tamai, the descendants of Anak, were there. So what? Who are these guys? Why note these three people out of all of the other people that were inhabitants of the land? And it's because they were shack-like guys. They were giants also, all right? Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. They came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. They carried it on a pole between two of them, and they also brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster uh, that the people of Israel cut down from there. Can you imagine grapes so big that it takes Russ and I and a pole to carry a, glus- a cluster of grapes? What would that cost you per pound at Price Chopper, all right? At the end of 40 days, verse 25, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent it. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. That would be a, this, verse 22 
two, Ahman, Shashai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anik were there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let's go do it. God is with us. If God's with us, who could be against us? But they wouldn't have that. And actually, that's my version. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are, we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who, were, who had gone up with him uh, said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. They brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out, it's a land that devours its inhabitants, all the people that we saw in it, are of great height. They're giants. They're Nephilim, just like Genesis chapter 6. They're saying what I would say if I had to look up to Shaquille O'Neal with a foot that big. They're saying they're huge. They were in the land and afterwards. Where did they come from? Where did these giants come from? They were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Goliath, we're not going to... Well, let me read Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess uh, nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to the heavens, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, Anakin, uh, whom you know and of whom you have heard, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. That's why Joshua could say, let's go do it. That's why Caleb was, was willing to say, let's go take care of it. He will destroy them, subdue them before you, so you should drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord had promised you. Moses was aware of these giants as well. We're not going to read the story of Goliath, but you remember, Goliath's height was six cubits and a span. That's like nine feet, nine feet, six inches. Just his armor weighed 125 pounds. I mean, I'd be good to move it like from here to the piano, but he fought in that stuff, okay? Now, just to give you a visual of how big Goliath was, I put a piece of tape up here. This is Jerry, and that is Goliath. Okay, he's a giant. Where did they come from? They were destroyed after the flood in Genesis 6. They were, they were the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men. And we don't have an answer that's clear. Where did they come from? These were, those in Genesis 6 were destroyed. Was it, was it original DNA that, that might, maybe fallen angels left with some of the natural women that they had cohabited with? Would it, have been, would it have been Noah's son's wives that perhaps had this DNA? Don't know. But do you remember what Legion said to Jesus? Legion said to Jesus, what have I to do with you, son of the most high God? Are you here to torment me before my time? He understood some eschatology. He understood that there's a final day of judgment. And there are fallen angels that are imprisoned in chains and gloomy darkness now because of the atrocious act that they did way back in Genesis 6. Don't hear me say that Shaq is demonic, okay? He needs Jesus. I've watched an interview or two. He needs Jesus really bad, okay? Um, but hear me say 
that there are some who are giants that side with the enemy. My opinion, demonic activity is going strong these days and more in our country than what we would have admitted from before. Maybe because we've turned our back on the Lord quite a bit. I don't know. You'll hear people ask questions like, do you believe in aliens? What I believe in is angels, good and bad. And I think some of the alien activity could be attributed to demonic activity as well. Might it be because the angels that cohabited with the women in Genesis 6 were imprisoned? Might it be that other fallen, and this is speculation, I get it. Might it be that other fallen angels found them so attractive that later they would do the same thing and continue this giants in the land possibility? Possibly. Don't know. But we know that there's giants in the land. Angelic beings. I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 19 um, just for the idea of the intimacy between uh, an angel and a human. We've, we've, we see it in Genesis chapter 6. Do we see it anywhere else in Scripture? You know the story of Genesis eight, 18 and 19. Genesis 18 and 19, the angel of the Lord came with two other beings, and they're, they're declared as angels in chapter 19. And they met Abraham, and the angel of the Lord said to the angel, should we hide from Abraham what we're going to do? And Abraham negotiates it down so that God isn't going to destroy all of Sodom and Gomorrah, but that he would save the righteous that were in the land. And Genesis 19 says this, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Spend the night, wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. And I got a feeling that Lot in his mind was saying, oh, my word, we can't do that. And so he compelled them. He pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. Verse 4, but before, the, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man, that is everybody in that place, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house, they called a lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And he's not talking about having a cup of coffee, all right? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And so here are these two angelic beings and all of these inhabitants of Sodom saying, bring them out to us. We want to have relations with them as well. So how does that happen? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. But what I do know is our world is intensely spiritual. Just as equal as it is physical, and the spiritual does exist whether we understand it all or not. They're angelic beings, how could it be? And yet they came in the form of human flesh. So somehow, we're going to go back to Genesis 6, somehow the union and offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6 added to, it didn't create only, it added to the wickedness of man that was great on the earth during Noah's day to the point that God said, I'm just going to destroy everything. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, let me read it again, then we'll finish up. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. 
His days shall be 120 years. The Nephtalim were on the earth in those days. Listen to this and watch the flow of the sentence. The Nephtalim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They are the direct offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. These were the mighty men of old who were of old, the men of renown. And this is what I can do and this is what you can do. We can take Genesis 6, this will represent Genesis 6, and we can say, you know what, I don't understand that. So I'm just going to step away from that, and I'm just going to live with what I understand. We don't get to do that. We can wrestle with it, we can have to grow in it, but we don't get to rip a page out of our Bible like Haimundu did in Zizhaka and say, I don't want to pay any attention to that. We don't get to do that. I want us to finish up with a strong word about the spiritual world that we live in and the spiritual battle that we're in. Spiritual battle, hear this. Spiritual battle is much more than me wrestling with sin. And I think sometimes we wrestle with sin so much that we think that's the focus and the intensity of spiritual battle. Don't hear me say that's not true. But hear me say that it includes something over here and something over here as well. So it is spiritual battle that I'm tempted and, that I, and, that I, and God has given me victory and I, and I need to choose to walk in it by faith. It is spiritual battle, but spiritual battle is much more than that. Genesis 6 shows us that. Jude shows us that. Second Peter chapter 2 show us that. Leviticus, or not Leviticus, but uh, Genesis 19 with the, with the angels and the, and the folks of Sodom show us that as well. It includes that, but spiritual battles much more. It includes the angels stepping outside of their proper domain. How do they do that? I don't know, but that's what they did. They were given this, and they said, I'm going to step over here. That's what they did. And it was so atrocious that God said, instantly, you are judged, you are chained, you're in gloomy darkness until the final day of judgment. And he says it three or four times in Scripture. It includes the angels stepping outside of their proper domain. It includes Daniel, spiritual battle includes Daniel praying and an angel being sent to answer his prayer, Daniel 10, who was detained by the prince, I think a fallen angel, of the kingdom of Persia, and then Michael the archangel came to help him so that he could be freed to go and answer, answer Daniel's prayer, Daniel chapter 10. Do I understand all that? No. But his spiritual battle and the spiritual world that we live in is just as real, more so, I don't think I can say more so, but as equal to the physical world that we live in as well. And so when we find something in Scripture, don't let the limitation of my understanding declare whether it's true or not true. If God says it, and if he says it two or three different times, it's true. Now we seek to understand what it is that he says, and how can I apply it to my life? It includes, spiritual battle includes the war, and this is my opinion, and it's the opinion of many, the war that's going on in Israel as we speak right now. People being killed. The war that's going on in Israel as we speak. It's not the final war. And the reason I say that is because Daniel tells us that there's going to be a time when nobody will side with Israel. And right now Israel has some people that are siding with it. So it's certainly, a, the stage is set for that time. Do we know when the time frame is? No. But it's spiritual battle. Spiritual battle is fought against the prince of the power of the air and his fallen angelic host and those who side themselves with him. Think about this. The title that God gave to Satan. The prince of the power of the air. Peter says this. 
If God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, if He didn't spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, if He rescued righteous Lot, righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and this is our focus, and this is where we'll finish, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how to rescue Jerry and Chris and Jim and everybody else, the righteous from trials, and he knows how and has the power to keep the unrighteous in prison until the day of the final judgment as well. I hope that helps you um, find a little bit of comfort in a message like, what in the world are angels doing these days? Because God knows how to protect us, and he also knows how to hold them. He tells us two things through Peter. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how to rescue you as his follower. You don't have to be afraid. You can walk as bold as a lion because you are in Christ Jesus. The, the, my identity isn't Jerry. It isn't Jerry the pastor. It isn't, I am in Christ Jesus. He is my identity. God knows how to rescue the righteous He's given me an identity. I don't have to be afraid. He always, always gives me a way of escape whenever I'm tempted. Reality, do I always take the way of escape? Well, sometimes I let my tongue say something that I shouldn't let my tongue say. And I know when I do it. And sometimes I let the pride of life get over on me or the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. But God consistently, every time, April 8th, 1980, looking backwards, I can't think of a time yet when God didn't give me a way of escape from a temptation that's come my way. He's always given me that. And so I'm growing in the Lord. I hope you are too, and I hope I am at the rate that I probably need to do a little bit better, frankly. (laughs) Don't we all? He always gives us a way of escape. He gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us. What that means is you need to learn to listen to how the Holy Spirit guides you. You need to listen to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit when he speaks to your conscience. It might not be a sin issue. It might just be a, Jerry, you need to go here, not here issue. I need to learn how to listen to the Spirit. He gives us his word, which is truth. And even if I were to suffer unto death, That doesn't mean he doesn't know how to rescue the righteous from temptation. He's overcome death, and he's going to overcome death for me as well. Peter said the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, but he also says, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despising authority. God also knows who is and how to judge the wicked and when it's time to bring the final judgment also. And he gives some space for repentance, but him in his omniscience knows already if someone's going to repent or not. I don't think we're robotic, but he knows who's going to and who's not going to, and he is able to keep those angels who fell from Genesis 6, and maybe later if there were others that followed them, in a judgment for the final day. But he works on his time frame. It isn't my time frame. It isn't, God, do you not see what's going on? With babies dying in war, do you not see what's going on? He sees what's going on. And he's able to keep those unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
Even the sons of God of Genesis 6 haven't endured their final judgment yet. They're waiting. So when you might get discouraged at the advancement of evil, and you look around, and you see all of the ungodly things that are going on, and we just kind of want to recoil or isolate ourselves from everything, be careful. When it appears that those who seek to honor God are persecuted or punished, maybe go back and read 2 Peter chapter 2 and be encouraged. And that gives you that good, strong, stable ground. Because we live in a very spiritual world. And we are absolutely in an intense spiritual battle. I hope you're in the battle. That having done all to stand, you're standing. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. Heavy subject. Crazy heavy. And we thank you for the revelation that you've given. Um, You've given us as much as you chose. And so we're seeking to understand as much as we can. Father, we recognize we live in a spiritual world. We thank you that you are able to deliver us from all trials and temptations and that you're able to control and that you have a day of judgment for the evil and the wicked. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, I think about what Jesus said as as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. It sure looks like that when we look around our world at the godlessness that's going on. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that in your name. Amen.